Hi there and welcome to Global Heart Church. Uh, I'm Jared Keane, the senior pastor, and wherever you are tuning in from around the world today, really, really hope and pray that in our planning of this message that it's going to really inspire you for the great journey that you are on and uh, for the great calling that you have in your own life. So enjoy the message and really pray that it's a blessing to you today. Take our seats. Can we thank the band? Thank you so much, guys. We appreciate you. Uh, these guys serve us so faithfully every week, week in, week out. And actually this week, a whole bunch of them have served all week long at our state conference. So can we just thank all of our worship team? We're blessed. Uh, one thing I am really grateful to God for is that He is here tonight. He is here and He can meet you wherever you are at this evening, right in your circumstance, right in your frame of mind, right in your feelings, right wherever you are at. And He can bring you more of His healing, more of His hope, more of His holy conviction, if that's what you need, more of just Himself, which always comes down to more of His love. And so I would love to invite you, just be open to that this evening. Why don't you let Him in to your attention, into your mind, into your heart. And uh, He won't waste that. He, he never wastes anything. All right, well, the message tonight is called Untruths About Trials and Temptations. And I know that doesn't really roll off the tongue very smoothly, but it is literally exactly what the message is about. And uh, we are going for clarity over catchy this evening. So that is what we're talking about. And I just wanna unpack some of the things that get in the way of us receiving the love of God and then loving God and then loving others, because that is life, amen? That is what we're here to do. Awesome, are you ready? Yeah. Great. Uh, one of my favourite books, you may have read it or heard about it, it is uh, by M. Scott Peck, a very famous bestseller called The Road Less Travelled. And uh, it opens with three profound words. Life is difficult. And I remember the first time I read those words. It was a couple of years ago. I was sitting on the beach at Trigg and I was on leave. So I was supposed to be relaxing and resting. And yet I still just had, you know, the weight of the whole world on my shoulders, all of the stress, just carrying it up here, tense like this. And so I'm sitting on the beach trying to relax, but I am aware that this is my relaxing time and I'm stressed and I'm not relaxing. So I'm then stressed about being stressed, worrying about the fact that my holiday is running out, time is running out, I'm not gonna unwind properly. And then I read those three words, life is difficult. And it was just kind of like, huh. And it was like a weight fell off. Now, I need to preface this whole message by saying tonight at the, at the outset, on the spectrum of difficult lives, my life falls over here, okay? I need to say that really clearly. I, like, I'm, I'm so aware, I'm an incredibly privileged human um, and I have been basically handed everything that you could hope for in life. And most of that is a credit to my wonderful parents whom I very much honour. Yeah, they're somewhere here, I honour you. Um, yeah. So I just want to say, I know that I'm very privileged and I am not up here to complain tonight. I want to clarify that. And yet, when I read those words, it brought a sense of relief to me on a deep level because they're true, 
right? Regardless of how privileged you are, those words are true. And it would serve all of us to remember this evening that the fact that we are in church tonight, that means that we are more privileged than most of the entire world. And as privileged as the most privileged people that there are, but still, regardless of how blessed and and, uh, well off you are, life is difficult. And uh, I don't know about you, but most days I don't like to live in the reality that life is difficult. Most days I like to expect that it should not be difficult. And then when it is inevitably difficult, I like to be surprised that that is happening. And then I like to get frustrated and complain about the difficulty. Anyone else? I like to try and engineer the circumstances around me to make things as easy and as convenient as they could possibly be. And I especially love to place this massive expectation on God to just make my life easier for me. Don't we all? And Peck continues in his book to explain that if we expect that life is going to be really easy, it will actually be so much harder because then we find ourselves wrapped up in our own experiences and our own stuff and our own difficulty. But if we expect, okay, do you know what? Life is probably going to be hard. Then we will find that it is deeply beautiful and it is full of good and it is full of joy and full of awe which is a great insight from him and it's a great book. He wasn't a Christian when he wrote that, but he came to faith later in his life. He was onto something. But uh, predating M. Scott Peck, predating much of the other wisdom that we see and hear about acceptance and open-handedness and navigating difficulty in the world, before all of that, there was the book of James found in the library of Scripture in the New Testament, written by James, the brother of Jesus, directly inspired by the Spirit of God. And it speaks to this very tension. This is one of my favourite books. And um, so tonight we are going to go on a bit of a journey through James chapter 1. And we're going to call out some of the lies that we are inclined to believe about trials and temptations that are inevitable in life in the hope that it will help us to navigate them. All good? Great, let's get into the Word of God. We've got a bit of a chunk of Scripture. James 1, 2 to 8. Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. If any of you lacks wisdom, you should ask God, who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given to you. But when you ask, you must believe and not doubt because one who doubts is like a wave of the sea, blown and tossed by the wind. That person should not expect to receive anything from the Lord. Such a person is double-minded and unstable in all they do. Heavy. Already there's a lot in those few verses. We'll pick up in verse 12 a little bit more. Blessed is the one who perseveres under trial because having stood the test, the person will receive the crown of life the Lord has promised to those who love Him. When tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me, for God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does He tempt anyone, but each person is tempted when they are dragged away by their own evil desire and enticed. Then, after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin, 
and sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to death. Don't be deceived, my dear brothers and sisters. Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of the heavenly lights, who does not change like shifting shadows. He chose to give us birth through the word of truth, that we might be kind of a first fruits of all He created. All right, there is lots and lots going on there. Um, we can't fully like exegete this whole passage unless you are happy to chill there until Sunday morning. So instead, we are going to pull out three untruths about trials and one untruth about temptations. And then we are going to land the plane together on what that means for us. All right. The first untruth is that trials mean that God is not active in my life and the world. This is a very common misconception, one that I have held myself. You may have held it yourself. What James is saying here is that we will face trials of many kinds and they will test our faith. So we shouldn't be surprised when it happens. And James is writing to Jewish Christians. He's, he's writing to people of faith. Uh, so any school of thought that leads you to believe that by following Jesus, you will be exempt from difficulty in your life uh, is a lie that will not serve you because it's just simply not true. And I often think we kind of know this in theory, right? We can agree with it when we're sitting in the rows at church. But then when something bad happens in life, that understanding kind of goes out the window and we're caught completely off guard. And it's like, why God, how could this happen? Later on in the book of James, uh, he mentions some of the trials that the people he was writing to were facing, poverty, persecution, physical illness, trials of many kinds, just like you and I face. And at being involved with young people and young adults, which I am, the testing of faith comes up a lot. And what we see a lot of is young people like mid-trial, mid-something difficult in their life going, well, where is God? And if God is real and if He is true, then how could this be happening to me? And sometimes they become completely disillusioned with their faith. Well, if I prayed, but I didn't see anything happen, does that mean God isn't actually real? Or if I placed all of my hope in this job or this relationship or this opportunity and then it fell through, can I actually trust that God has good plans for my life? Or if I've been walking with God for a while, but I'm, I'm still anxious or I'm still this or that, or the change isn't coming quickly enough, is life with God worth it? And it's a natural response. It's a natural response, but let us remind ourselves, Jesus said, in this world, you will have trouble. Paul said, we will go through hardships as we enter the kingdom of God. We need not be found shocked and stunned and reeling when difficulty comes our way. Like what's going on? Is God even real? We just need to open our Bibles and be found confident in the fact that trials are part of reality. God knows that. He's very aware. He has told us that. They in no way undermine His character. And in fact, He is always doing something in the midst of them. We don't need to be more spiritual than Jesus because He was okay with struggles and trials. He was grounded in reality. We can, we can accept reality without losing our faith because actually reality is an invitation to the deepening and the maturing of our faith. 
We'll unpack that a little more as we go. So the second untruth is that trials are an interruption to real life, to actual life. Verse one, consider it pure joy when uh, the trials of many kinds come. Now, this is an encouragement from James to people who are part of the family of faith. This does not apply to the whole world. It applies to us as Christians. We can find and should find joy in our trials. And when we read this, we often focus on the absurdity of being told to find joy in our pain because it sounds insane. But uh, let's also remember the fact that the only reason why we can find joy in our pain is because we have Jesus. Because of His death and His resurrection, we are now in touch with a deeper reality that nobody else in the world is in touch with where all pain is temporary. We will live pain-free with God one day. And in the meantime, God is always doing something in the midst of our pain. I often find myself commentating on like the state of the modern West and our culture and the impacts of it. And it's usually negative. Uh, but one thing that is so encouraging to me about the secular Western worldview is that it is so poorly equipped to handle pain and suffering. Um, Tim Keller writes really beautifully about this. In the secular worldview, there is no transcendent meaning to life. There's no purpose to life. Life is just this beautiful accident that happened. And therefore, that also means that there can be no meaning and no purpose in pain and suffering. It just is. It's just awful. It just sucks. It's just there. But as humans, we must make meaning of our lives to function. This is a neurobiological fact. We can't live without meaning. So... If we subscribe to the secular narrative, then that means we have to make meaning for ourselves. We have to find it inside of ourselves. And so we do, right? Everyone does. We find it in our ambitions or our pursuit of pleasure or our families, our romantic partners. Our meaning comes from within us. Which then means that as we're busy making meaning of our lives, building our lives, the trials and the pains that come along, they are at the very least an interruption to that meaning that we're trying to make and at the very most, a total destroyer of that meaning that we're trying to make. But there's no meaning and no potential in the pain and the trial itself. That is empty. That is sad. And I'm encouraged by the fact that that is the secular narrative because it makes the hope of Jesus shine so much brighter. Because in Jesus, trials are not purposeless interruptions to real life. They are part of real life. And because of Him, there is potential in that pain. Pain is not just something to avoid at all costs and then eventually uh, endure it when it inevitably finds us. It is an opportunity for God to produce, verse four, perseverance within us and for us to be made mature and complete, not lacking anything. Made mature and complete because we are looking to, clinging to, hoping in God alone and not our good circumstances. It is an opportunity to be found depending on Him, leaning on Him, learning our identity is Him, trusting in Him, being matured and made patient by Him. Because the world's metric for success is that we get what we want, but our metric for success is that we become like Jesus. 
and Scripture calls Jesus a man of sorrows acquainted with grief. That is certainly not what I first think of when I think about becoming like Jesus. But we're not called to desire pain and suffering and trials, um, which unfortunately, believe it or not, some, some people do end up thinking that. We're, we are not called to seek pain, but when it comes, we can take great comfort in the fact that in that place, we identify with Jesus who suffered for us and He can make us more like Him. People of more compassion, more empathy, less selfishness, greater trust in who God is and not just the stuff He gives us. A thicker skin, a softer heart, more love for others. Now, I often think of people like Pastor Sue and Pastor Leah, who's in Montreal now, who have navigated and continue to navigate you know, whatever trials come their way in life, of which there have been many, with just this unreserved trust in Jesus and love for Jesus. And as a result, God has produced this well-formed, persevered, fought for, fleshed out faith within them. And now they are able to bring healing to my life and many other lives just by having a conversation with them because of who they are. And that is what's on the table for us. Not necessarily a life that looks exactly the way we want, but in a life that's gonna look however it's gonna look, the transforming and healing power of Jesus Christ for us and then for others. And the third untruth is if my trial brings doubt, I have no faith. I've grappled with this one. Verse five, if any of you lacks wisdom, you should ask God who gives generously to all without finding fault and it will be given to you. But when you ask, you must believe and not doubt because the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea blown about and tossed by the wind. That person should not expect to receive anything from the Lord. Such a person is double-minded and unstable in all they do. I have always loved the book of James, uh, but those verses have thoroughly freaked me out uh, because so many times I've just like clenched my fists and tried really hard because I needed wisdom from God and I was determined not to doubt, like the Scripture says. And so I'm just kind of there like, I do believe, I do believe, I do, I do, like Peter Pan style. Anyone else done that? That's normal, right? Uh, But this is not what James is saying here. He is not saying you can never think, God, I want you to help me in my job, in my marriage, in my parenting, in my friendships, my service, my struggle, but I I don't really see how you can and I am struggling to see it and I'm, I'm finding it hard. He's not saying that at all. What he's saying is be sincere in your struggle. Don't be double-minded. Scholars all agree that this is a word that James made up and it's the first time that it appears in Greek literature. And what he meant by double-minded was two-souled. So as in like, okay, God, I'll try your way of living. I'll try your way of operating at work, your way of parenting, your way of friendship, of service, of study. But if it doesn't work for me, I'll try something else. I'll do whatever everyone else is doing. As in like, I'll pray that you bless my study, but if an opportunity to cheat arises, I'm gonna take it. (laughs) Or I'll pray that you bring me a partner that loves you, but I'll also get with whoever gives me attention. Or I'll try and bring you into my workplace and be a witness for you, but at the same time, if an opportunity arises to get ahead by stepping on someone else, I'll take it. That is what it means to be double-minded. It's not to struggle sincerely with God and to wrestle with things. It's having the plan B of culture in your back pocket or trying to do the God thing and the culture thing at the same time. 
And when we live that way, we are unstable and God uh, will not respond to that. But sincerely struggling looks like, oh my God, I don't really know. And I'm not sure and I have my doubts, but I am here and I'm not going anywhere and I'm going to live your way by your grace, through your power, in your community of believers, in the church. And I am choosing to believe that you will see me through. That is faith and that is trust. One thing that really, really hurts my heart is when people say, because their life is a little bit chaotic at the moment or things are a bit messy, that they don't wanna come to church. Because this is supposed to be the place where we struggle together. Church is not supposed to be the place where you only come when you have everything sorted out. Church is the community of believers that we live our lives together with day in, day out in good and in bad. You know, might we be people who are determined to bring our whatever into the house of God? And might we be people who are determined to love other people regardless of what their whatever is? We come here to be healed and transformed, not after we're healed and transformed. If that's how it works, we're never gonna get there. And I most certainly should not be up here or down there or really anywhere near the building, right? So struggle sincerely, wrestle faithfully. All right, so three untruths about trials. Trials mean that God is not active in my life and in the world. Actually, trials are an invitation to the activity of God in your life and the world. Two, trials are an interruption to real life. Actually, trials are part of real life and in Jesus, there is potential in your pain. Three, if my trial brings doubt, I have no faith. Actually, faith looks like struggling with doubt sincerely and staying the path. All right, you tracking with me? All right, one untruth about temptation. It's getting a bit more. Yeah, we're gonna go now. Um, (laughs) I can flirt with temptation without consequence. If we are honest, not all of the pain of life comes from trials that we have little to no control over. A whole big chunk of the pain of life comes from the choices that we make. Verse 13, when tempted, no one should say God is tempting me for God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does He tempt anyone, but each person is tempted when they are dragged away by their own evil desire and enticed. Then after desire is conceived, it gives birth to sin and sin when it is full grown gives birth to death. Trials will always lead to temptation in our lives and our worlds because in them, we find ourselves more vulnerable than we normally are. Where do you go in order to self-medicate when you are sad, exhausted, lonely, rejected, feeling entitled, hungry, stressed, you failed, you're brokenhearted, right? We will be tempted, all of us. We will be enticed. We will be lured away from the things of God by our own broken thoughts and desires. So what do we do with this? Well, James says, consider where it leads. Verse 15, after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin and sin when it's full grown, gives birth to death. We can often think that we can flirt with temptation back here. Well, it's like not that bad, right? It's not that dishonest. Does that even technically count as a sin? Without considering the fact that that flirtation with temptation will lead to sin, which will lead to death. Now, not necessarily your physical death, Um, Although that is the whole thing about sin. That's sin's whole thing. Sin leads to death. But in, in like little situations, not necessarily your death, but often the death of the fullness of God in our lives 
You know, will giving into your temptation, will giving into the self-medication of your choice lead to greater love? to deepening the love of Jesus within you, to the life and the self and the relationships that you hope for. I can say that mine certainly never do. So what then, right? Do we just like try really, really hard never to explode with anger, never to overeat, never to indulge in lust? Like we all know that doesn't work long-term, maybe for a few days, few weeks. Verse 16, don't be deceived, my dear brothers and sisters. Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of heavenly lights who does not change like shifting shadows. Our problem with temptation comes down to our own deception that God is not enough for us. Every good and perfect gift comes from above. Why do we flirt with temptation? Why do we self-medicate? Because we're in need of something. The truth is that we're all just in need of the love of Christ, but we often don't believe that like on on the deepest internal level. And so we go wherever we go for satisfaction, for distraction, for medication. But God is better. He is the giver of all good gifts. He is the giver of Himself. He will care for you. One untruth about temptation. I can, conf- I can flirt with temptation with no consequence. No, we can't. Temptation leads to sin and sin leads to death, but our hope is in the God that is better than every temptation and who is more than enough for us. Now, you may have never heard that God is all that you need, that He is enough for you, or maybe you've heard that 50 billion times and it's lodged in your head, but can I ask you this evening, do you believe it in the depth of your being? Do you live out of that reality? Do you believe that God can heal the deepest brokenness in your life? Do you believe that if you trust Him with your finances, He will provide for you? Do you believe that if you steward your sexuality the way His Word says, which is quite intense, that you will be fulfilled? Do you believe that if you pour out your life in sacrifice like He calls you to, that you will end up fuller and richer? As we begin to understand the depth of the way God loves us, we begin to see that whatever we go to in life to medicate with, to feel better with, it's all just deception because every good and perfect gift comes from God. The healing that we need, the hope that we need, the security that we need, the comfort that we need, it all comes from above. We're getting to the end. Uh, I hope that, well, I wanna tell you tonight, this is, a, this is a proven love that we can know. You don't have to believe it just because I'm telling you that tonight, right? God in Himself is love. He created this world from love and for love because He desires a relationship with us. In His love, He gifted us freedom. And with that freedom, we chose to reject Him and His way, bringing brokenness into the world. Every trial and every temptation that we now face ultimately comes from sin, our rejection from God as humankind. And so now there is sin in every one of us and there is brokenness in the physical world around us. Sin being our failure to love God and love people the way He always intended and the consequences of that. But this is the proof of His love. This is His response to our rejection, that He would uh, come incarnate into a human body. He would descend right into the sin and the chaos of the world. Jesus, the God who was completely God and completely man, He lived a perfect, sinless, blameless life on the earth. He endured trials like you and I. He was tempted, but He did not sin. And then as a perfect, holy, righteous, blameless sacrifice, He bore the weight of all our sin and shame on the cross. Romans 5, 6 to 8. You see, at just the right time when we were 
is still powerless. Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person, someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates His own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Three days later, He resurrected, defeating that sin for good. And now we are invited to live in the Kingdom of God, life with God right now, with all of the power that comes with that and with all of the hope in a future life with Him where He will redeem the world to its state of perfection and we will want for nothing living with God in eternity. So that is the proof. That is the proof of the love of God for us. But it doesn't stop there. This is an active, moving, working, compelling love that is following you, following you in your life and likely chasing you down. It is a love that we are invited to experience. Church, in both trial and temptation, our hope is found in the fact that we belong to Jesus. His death paid the price for our lives. If we let it, His love will define who we are now. In His love is the power to withstand and the power to overcome. Trials are inevitable, temptation will come, but our hope is in Jesus and he, Him being enough for us. Now that's all well and good, right? But what does that look like in a day in, day out life? I'll tell you a story. Um, some of you may know Georgia Smith, she and her husband Ash uh, and their kids are a great family in our church and George is my dearest friend. And we did Bible college together here, Global Heart Leadership College, like a lifetime ago. And we spent that time uh, doing everything together, living in each other's pockets and just dreaming and planning and hoping uh, for what the future was gonna look like. And we loved God and we had these big aspirations as to what we were gonna do for Him with our lives, which honestly in hindsight, was very self-indulgent and we have since learned to just be here to help. But at the time we were young and we were excited for the future. But then towards the end of Georgia's time at college, slowly her health started to deteriorate and a trial started to emerge. And I was gonna share her story, but she actually tells it way better than I do. And we actually recorded it earlier this year for Sisterhood. So um, we'll just look to the screen for a moment. I had a long season of painful and debilitating endometriosis and something called premenstrual dysphoric disorder. And for me, this really built up to the point where I was really struggling to get through a day without heavy painkillers. And I really stopped being out of study, stopped being out of work. I couldn't really do much of anything in my early 20s. I think for me in that season, it was very much every kind of external thing that I'd ever placed any value or identity in was completely stripped away, which meant that it was really just me before God with all of my uncertainty, my insecurity, and that was just, yeah, all my brokenness. It was just me. There was nothing else that I could possibly distract myself with. And for me, that looked like a lot of crying, a lot of journaling, a lot of getting out my word, but more, than that, I think it was a lot of readjusting my inner self and my mind to be focused completely on God and just be spending time with Him without any kind of hope or desire to be doing anything necessarily for Him in that season or for myself. And so it was this really beautiful place of sitting at Jesus' feet and just being with Him. And I don't think I, in fact, I know my relationship with God would not be anywhere near to the depth that it is now without having gone through that season of really, really deep inner work in my heart. Yeah. His 
presence and just him is everything and it's enough. And even if I was to never leave that season and never get the physical healing that I was praying for and desiring for, he was still enough and is still enough. And I think that is the most priceless and invaluable thing that he's changed in my heart, which has taken me through every single challenge I've had since. Um, and I think will take me through till, you know, when I meet him again. It's Genesis 41:52, and it's where Joseph, after a really long season of both suffering and prosperity, is naming his second son, and he names him Ephraim, which means God gave me uh, fruit in the land of my affliction. And it was this big turning point moment for me where God really transitioned from me looking at outcomes and really trying so hard to leave this season of challenge that I wasn't even cognitive of the fruit and the beauty and the incredible things that God wanted to do inside me in this challenge. Uh, and so it was, I had this big realization moment of God has fruit for me in this challenge and it's not something I need to spend all my time striving to get out of. In fact, it's just a place where I need to learn to sit in pain and be in a place of difficulty and just know that that's okay and that God is there and that he has beautiful things in that place, most of all just himself. I remember I had this moment where I cried out to God and I was like, God, why am I not enough that you would heal me? And I remember him saying to me that I was enough for him to send his son to die on the cross. And is that enough for you? And I had this moment where I had to really ask myself, like, is that enough for me? And am I okay to just have that? And what I realized is that there is nothing greater than that. And that was a beautiful transition for me. And then, yeah, I think it was like maybe not even a year later that I prayed a really soft and simple prayer of God, like I know that you can do these incredible miracles. And if you want to do one with me, like I would love that and I'll accept that. And then that's what he did. And I went to have some really intense surgery and they opened me up to find that I was almost completely healed. And then I was, you know, able to conceive and have my son and now I'm about to have my daughter. So yeah, I was able to experience both incredible internal and external miracles in this season. Yeah. Beautiful, right? Consider it pure joy whenever you face trials of many kinds because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. I'm just gonna finish with one last thought uh, about John, the apostle and the disciple. He wrote the Gospel of John amongst other books. And he uh, often in scripture referred to himself as the one who Jesus loved or the disciple whom Jesus loved. And so you'll be like reading along in John and it will say, and then the disciple whom Jesus loved, yada, yada, yada. But that's John writing that about himself. And people like to joke about that and they will often say like, ha ha ha, John, like you're a bit high on yourself, aren't you? But the reality is he wasn't arrogant. He just understood that his truest identity was in the fact that Jesus loved him and that he belonged to Jesus. And this is a photo of the Last Supper. Um, 
where they are reclining, they're eating at the Last Supper. And the Scripture says that the disciple whom Jesus loved was reclining next to him and then he uh, leant on Jesus. And we see this beautiful picture of intimacy and closeness between Jesus and John as John laid his head on Jesus' chest. And after this was Jesus' journey to the cross. And along that journey, all of the disciples fell away. Judas betrayed Him. Peter denied Him. At the hour of His arrest, all of the disciples fled because this was a trial of all trials, right? Their whole world, all of their hope for the future, it was crumbling before their eyes. And yet there was one disciple who was left at the cross, at the crucifixion with the women, never leaving Jesus even as He died. John 19, 25 to 27, near the cross of Jesus stood his mother's sister, Mary the wife of Clopas and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother there and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to her, woman, here is your son. And to the disciple, here is your mother. From that time on, the disciple took her into his home. John was there until the very, very end. So what's the point? What does that mean? The one who leans will be the one who lasts. The one who understands, I am loved by Jesus. I belong to Him. That is who I am. All I need is more of Him. All I need is more of His love. That is the one who will be left remaining after the anything and everything that life can throw at us. Amen. Church, life is difficult. Life is difficult, trials will come, there will always be temptation, but the one who leans will be the one who lasts. Why don't you stand? Let's just worship for a moment. Thank you so much for joining us online today. Really great to have you with us and special thanks to those also who give online. Your generosity is making the way for others to hear the message of Jesus both here in Australia and around the world. If you enjoyed today's message, I'd love to encourage you to share this message with a friend, a workmate, a family member, and let's believe together that it will powerfully impact their life for good in Jesus' name. If you're unable to be with us at one of our church locations, uh, both here in Australia and around the world, please join us online every Sunday for Global Heart at Home on YouTube. God bless and have a great week.